if you take a job where somebody is telling you how to practice and what you need to do and is offering you significantly less money than another job. I don't think I thought about it. So it was almost like food. What was I going to do? I had to talk to somebody. You know, it, it was a life necessity. It's a gift. It's a gift to be able to sit with somebody with mental illness and be their tether between the world of madness and the world of whatever this world is, more or less sanity. I'm Elaine Grant. And I'm Matt Winia. This is Hard Call, the podcast about some of the toughest decisions we make about our health. This season, we're following the story of Jeff Zinn, who has provided us with documentary recordings and interviews that he's conducted with his friends and family over the last 15 years of his life. At the end of the last episode, we asked you if you thought Jeff should tell his biggest customer that he had been recently hospitalized and diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So we're going to let Jeff tell you what ended up actually happening next. You know, I obviously did tell. And the reason that I did is that I can't live the lie that I felt that I had to get it out, you know, and for me to sit across from somebody I knew and then go into the business mode, if I didn't release that tension, you know, from that moment, there's no way I could have been natural. I had to express it, get it out, and then I could be in the moment and show the line and discuss business. And it turned out that Jeff's decision to tell his biggest customer wasn't nearly as catastrophic as his COO had warned. Well, I told her, and we had quite a lengthy conversation about it. And she was very understanding, in fact, revealed some things about herself and her family uh, as well, and became inquisitive, you know, tell me what you know, what now and what are you going to do? I'm sure she some of it had to do about my stability and where I thought I would go. Uh, but we became tighter. You know, to this day we talk, as I do with a lot of my buyers, because I did get personal. I did go that extra step to let them in. And by doing so, not for everyone, but for most, uh, it really helped in my business world. It served me. So Jeff has left the hospital, and he's trying to get back on his feet at work. He's told his customers about his mental illness. And now that he's medicated, things at work aren't as exciting as they were before, but he's doing all right at his job. He's also seeing a psychiatrist. I was a little surprised by the psychiatrist he chose to see. Jeff went to the psychiatrist who he originally saw for what he thought was marriage counseling. And as a reminder, it wasn't marriage counseling. This was a visit that his wife had orchestrated because she thought he needed to be involuntarily hospitalized. So he's now seeing this psychiatrist, and that psychiatrist is charging... $250. For? Um, I'm thinking close to an hour, if I remember right. 50 minutes. And he's going to her... There were sometimes two times a week, but at least probably once a week for quite some time. So that's a, that's a lot of money. Conservatively speaking, um, that's $1,000 a month, and he's paying all of that out of pocket. And one of the reasons he's seeing a psychiatrist in the first place is that he was recklessly spending thousands of dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
this point, you're probably thinking, doesn't he have insurance? Yeah, the answer to that is yes, he does have insurance, but it's not doing him any good because his psychiatrist does not take insurance. In fact, there are a lot of psychiatrists who don't take insurance. Around half of all psychiatrists in private practice don't take any type of insurance, and even fewer take Medicaid. So Jeff is stuck paying what, well, to some people, would be a second rent or a mortgage. But it's for treatment that, frankly, he can't do without. To be honest, I, I don't think I thought about it. It was almost like food, you know? To me, if I didn't go, I, what was I going to do? I had to talk to somebody. You know, it, it was a life necessity, and I, I don't think I thought about it. That's why I didn't talk about that kind of thing with her. I had too many of my own problems. Her, her, paying her 250 wasn't one of them. I thought it was actually cheap. <laughs> Some of them in New York charged 300 400 $500 an hour. So why do psychiatrists charge so much for a session, and why do so many refuse to accept insurance? And since they do charge that much, how is anyone who's not a successful Manhattan businessman like Jeff supposed to get access to potentially life-saving mental health care? In this episode, we're going to depart from Jeff's story for a little while and just take a little time to examine the mental health care system, a system a lot of people feel is broken. I talked to Dr. Dinah Miller. You may remember her from episode one when I talked to her about her new book, Committed, which addresses the battle over involuntary hospitalization. So Dr. Miller, uh, as we said before, has been a psychiatrist for almost three decades. Okay, so let me start with the idea that the statistic that half of all psychiatrists don't take insurance is half of all psychiatrists in private practice. So this doesn't include psychiatrists who work in clinics where they're employed. And it doesn't include psychiatrists who work in hospitals. So part of Jeff's problem is he's choosing to see a private practice psychiatrist. But the real question is, why don't private practice psychiatrists take insurance in the first place? Well, Dr. Miller's been pretty outspoken about why she doesn't and why lots of other private practice psychiatrists don't. Psychiatrists earn the second or third lowest amount of money of any of the medical specialties. They earn less than half of what a cardiologist or gastroenterologist earns. Okay, speaking of money, we're going to take a quick break here to thank one of our funding partners who make this series possible. We'd like to introduce you to an organization we're pretty fond of, one of our funders, Community First Foundation. For more than 40 years, Community First Foundation has been helping donors and nonprofits improve quality of life across Colorado's front range. You may have already heard of the foundation's signature program, coloradogives.org, which has changed the landscape of giving in Colorado. In 2016, coloradogives.org raised almost $34 million on Colorado Gives Day, the largest online giving movement in the state. In 2014, they conducted a community listening tour, and the community identified mental wellness as one of their most important concerns. So their grants now are focused on early childhood mental wellness, improving the systems that support mental wellness, and changing the public perception of mental health and mental illness. Before the break, psychiatrist Dinah Miller was explaining one of the reasons why she and other psychiatrists don't take insurance. And it was sounding like psychiatrists don't make very much money. 
So we should be clear, the average psychiatrist in 2014 made $200,000 a year almost. That is low compared to some of the really highly paid specialties like orthopedic surgeons make over $400,000 a year on average. But really, this is all relative. So in general, psychiatrists are paid less than many other physicians, but they are not paid poverty wages. They are definitely not paid poverty wages. What Dr. Miller is saying isn't exactly complaining that psychiatrists get paid too little, but that if you take insurance, you'll make a lot less than if you don't. And then on top of that, there's also a paperwork problem. And the paperwork isn't just a hassle, it actually adds a lot to the cost of doing business. In order to, to accept insurance, it usually requires hiring a secretary, which um, a private practice doctor who does not accept insurance may or may not choose to do. And I have chosen not to do this. I don't have any staff, it's me. The doctor who's in network has to have somebody to submit the claims and then to argue with the insurance companies. So it might make sense to do it for a very high volume practice, but if you're seeing somebody for psychotherapy, you're usually seeing them for an hour a day, which means maybe you're seeing eight patients a day. So your income is limited to what the insurance will pay, and then it's limited to whether or not they actually do pay, because they often don't. So what she does, and a lot of psychiatrists do this, is... So I give everybody an insurance form and they can send it to their insurance company. So if she were to take insurance, she'd need to hire someone to do all that paperwork and that would be expensive. By not taking it, she's saving money for herself, making her business more viable. But we should also acknowledge she's basically pushing that paperwork burden onto her patients. And let's be honest, some patients might be able to handle that burden others won't. But then there's another problem. And to some psychiatrists, this is the most vexing one. And that is that they don't want insurance companies telling them how to treat their patients. If you're in the network, what it means is that you agree to practice psychiatry the way that the insurance company wants you to. You, your fee is what they're willing to pay you. And for most insurances for a long time now, it's been considerably less than the going fee. And for a while, insurance companies were dictating how many sessions a patient could be seen for. So if the patient has coverage for 25 sessions, but they're in crisis and they need a 26th session, um, then the doctor either couldn't see them or had to eat the cost of this. Would you take a job where somebody is telling you how to practice and what you need to do and is offering you significantly less money than another job? Yeah, and that, to her, is an ethical issue, especially for a psychiatrist who wants to practice therapy and not just manage meds. Patients like having doctors who listen to them, where they go and talk for a full hour session or 50-minute session, where their doctor is someone who answers the phone when they call, who's available, who gets them in when they need to be seen. Given what Dr. Miller has told us about how difficult it could be to make a living as a psychiatrist, you might be wondering why would any psychiatrist choose to take insurance at this point? It's actually not as obvious as it seems. For one thing, there is a way to make good money while taking insurance. 
If your interest is seeing a lot of patients, then the economics can be very good of seeing three or four patients an hour, seeing many patients in a day, and the insurance companies tend to reimburse fairly well for short visits. It's the longer visits that get to be an issue because the insurance company can pay a social worker much less than a psychiatrist. There are less expensive ways of having psychotherapy than with a psychiatrist. But for some people, it really becomes an issue to split your care between a social worker and have somebody who doesn't really know what's going on in your life and just picks the medications dependent on symptoms and side effects, but doesn't hear all about your relationship um, with your boss and, and how that's influencing it. So it's a different kind of practice. If it's all about the money, there's a, a, a way to make money being in network. But what if that's not the kind of practice you want? You don't want to just be in the business of managing medications. And we've already heard all the reasons why it just doesn't seem to make financial sense to take insurance unless that's your kind of practice. Is there any other reason why psychiatrists would take insurance? But I'm here because this is the work that I went to med school for. It's the work that's always engaged me. I've always thought that illness preferentially visits the poor, so physicians and other medical services should preferentially be available for the poor. It's... It's sort of an easy choice just because it's why I did it in the first place. That's my colleague. I'm Abraham Nussbaum. He's a faculty member here at our Center for Bioethics and Humanities. I'm a psychiatrist, and I work at Denver Health. That's an academic safety net hospital in Denver. So it's not that Dr. Nussbaum takes insurance directly. Rather, he's paid a salary to see patients who are admitted to Denver Health. And those patients, they either have private insurance or they're on Medicaid or Medicare, um, insurance programs for low income or elderly people, or some of them at Denver Health don't have insurance at all. He's also an author. Yeah, I wrote uh, several psychiatric textbooks and recently wrote a memoir, The Finest Traditions of My Calling, One Physician's Search for the Renewal of Medicine. Now, when we think about who's paying for mental health care and who can get it, well, those are pretty personal questions if you're Jeff or someone with a Jeff in their family. But they're also health policy questions, which have a lot to do with whether or not you might choose to take insurance. So for Abraham, who also has a degree in theology, how we pay for mental health care should be directly related to how he thinks we should make it possible for psychiatrists to spend quality time with their patients. I think that the problem in medicine today has many different manifestations, but the root cause is that the relationship between the people who we know as patients and the people who are known as clinicians, whether it's physicians, nurse practitioners, etc., have lost their rhythm. They no longer know how to talk to each other and with each other. So that does get back directly to the question of time. Dr. Miller says if you're in private practice, Taking insurance, you'd need to see at least three or four patients an hour to make it as a business. And that's why Abraham isn't in private practice, but he does take insurance. So I work in an academic safety net system, so I'm a salaried employee of this system. For me, the advantage of that is that it reduces my motivation to just what the patient needs and what the system needs. I don't get paid more if I order a test. I don't get paid less if I don't order a test. If I admit or discharge you, it doesn't bring home me any kind of money. It doesn't affect my salary. That, to me, reduces some aspects of moral hazard that I believe are occur in the context of everyday medical practice. 
the flip side of that is I probably get paid less than a lot of private practice psychiatrists do, um, but I still make a, a better living than I deserve. So if I was in a private practice psychiatry service and you don't take private insurance, you wind up, by the nature of that, often seeing patients without serious psychotic disorders, which is the patients that I went into psychiatry to work with. And being able to do that kind of work, to see the patients that most need him, that makes it all worth it for him. This is a choice that works well for him. So I would tell you that I ultimately wound up here through a series of choices that I made along the way, right? I thought I was gonna be an English lit major. I was an English lit major in college and I thought I was gonna be an English professor. I just always kind of assumed I was never gonna make any money, right? I figured I'd be adjuncting it until I was 40, you know, wearing macrame and trying to get a free cup of coffee from the faculty lounge. So for me, this was, I assumed I wasn't going to make money, and so I've always lived that way, which helped. Being in a public safety system, you have to make intentional choices in order to focus on what matters. So at Denver Health, uh, they don't buy me lunch, right? We don't have a special parking lot for the physicians. We don't have a physician's lounge. Our spaces are very utilitarian. They're very pragmatic. Uh, my office is not particularly grand, but we work hard to save money so that we can see patients on public insurance. There is tremendous challenges with setting up systems that run on public insurance, but it's totally satisfying work. I can't tell you how many times I talk to my colleagues in private practice and they're making choices that are subtly or unsubtly affected by payment structure. And that's true for us too. There's certain kinds of services I can't get people access to, but I can always fight to get people access to a basic level of services. It, what, a, what a really great private practitioner can say and will say to me is, I can see a patient as many times a week as they wanna be seen. I can spend intense private time with them and I can do high level psychotherapy with them. And there are days that I, I envy that, right? I think about, um, some of the patients I saw in residency who were college professors and had these very interesting learned minds and having some of the discussions I had with them in therapy, I can see why somebody would want to do that in private practice. But if I don't see the patients we see here, the patients with public insurance, it's not clear that other people will. So uh, you make a choice and it's a choice you kind of make every day. But at some point it's not a hard choice. Um, Physicians make more than reasonable salaries. It's, it's not an easy life, but it's a, it's a gift. It's a gift to be able to sit with somebody with mental illness and be their tether between the world of madness and the world of whatever this world is, more or less sanity. So that sounds honorable, noble, but are there enough Denver healths around? I would tell you that it's very clear that most people don't have access to mental health services they need. In the state in which I live, most counties don't have a psychiatrist or even a psychologist, right? And so there's this misdistribution between the very scarce resource of mental health professionals and the population in need. 
In Colorado, like many other states, they're concentrated in urban areas near the training centers. And so if you live in a rural community in Colorado, you often drive days. So today we have a patient on the unit who's from a small town in central Wyoming. It's 300, 400 miles to Denver. This was the nearest psychiatric hospital for him. One thing that mental health advocates say a lot is that there are way too many people who need mental health care and who don't get it. Almost 40% of people with serious mental illness are untreated in any given year, so that's about 4 million people with very serious conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disease just in this country who aren't being treated. Right. Separate from insurance issues, there are plenty of other barriers to treatment. In our last episode, we talked about stigma, which often prevents people from seeking treatment, But even if you overcome stigma, even if you can afford it, even if you have insurance, there's a huge shortage of trained mental health professionals. And the shortage comes from not enough people choosing to go into psychiatry. That's pretty interesting because, Matt, if you look at surveys of professional satisfaction, psychiatrists are actually pretty satisfied compared to a lot of other doctors. Well, satisfied or not, many psychiatrists don't take insurance and that makes it really tough for a patient to find a psychiatrist if they can't afford those private fees. Dr. Miller has even looked into this. That's right, she did an experiment on it. I recently gave a talk at the University of Maryland on access to care. So I decided to do an experiment as I was writing the talk and call around and see if I could get an appointment. So I called my own health insurance company and asked, can you give me a list of people in uh, my area who accept my health insurance, which is, was, is a form of Blue Cross. Um, and the insurance company said, sure, we'll email you a list. So they sent me a list. It was about 100 people long. And she called a few of those people. And lo and behold... Yeah, let me guess, it's a bad list. That's right. Uh, this happens all the time. The person answering the phone hasn't heard of the psychiatrist or the practice is closed or the doctor's retired. That's right. So Dr. Miller decided to call the community mental health clinic down the road where she had worked a few years before. And they said, we're not taking people, but you're welcome to call back. I mentioned that I worked at Johns Hopkins for 15 years. So I called the secretary there who, uh, and said, said to her, Linda, um, what, what does it take nowadays to get an appointment? And she said, well, we have it set up so that there's an intake day. You come on intake day and um, we assess you and assign you to a doctor. So you have to come on the next intake day. And I said, so when is that? And she said, oh, it isn't set up. Well, when will it be set up? We don't know. The last one was three months ago when 65 people showed up. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with more on this really troubling problem. And now I'd like to thank one of our generous funders, the Colorado Health Foundation. The foundation is singularly focused on helping Coloradans live their healthiest lives by advancing opportunities to pursue good health and achieve health equity through grant making, policy and advocacy, strategic private investments, and convening to drive change. For more information, please visit www.coloradohealth.org. Hey, 
And now back to the dilemma we're facing in this episode. How do people with serious mental illnesses, like Jeff, get treatment if there aren't enough psychiatrists and if they don't have the kind of money Jeff has? You know, I'm very interested in the issue of access because I've written a book on involuntary care, and I think it's so odd and so awful that we're putting so much effort into legislation on involuntary care when people can't get voluntary care. So we've talked to two healthcare professionals who made two completely different choices about how they want to get paid for their work. Both of them claimed it was a relatively easy decision for them, but could it really be such an easy decision? On the one hand, Dr. Miller argues that it makes no financial sense for a psychiatrist in private practice to take insurance unless they want to be a sort of factory worker doctor who sees a lot of patients for 15-minute med checks, which she says aren't satisfying professionally, and they're not even very helpful to the patient. And, she says, the insurance hoops are just too hard for private practice psychiatrists, most of whom don't have administrative help and can't afford it. And then on the other hand, there's an enormous shortage of psychiatrists in this country. Mental health disorders are the number one health problem in every county in the U.S., so that shortage is hurting all of us. Elaine, you remember when we did Derailed uh, as a live production in front of an audience, we asked the audience how many of them had a loved one, a friend, or a colleague suffering from a mental illness in the last year. Do you remember how many said yes? I do. It was almost everyone. Yeah, in 2015, almost one in five adults in the U.S. had a diagnosable mental disorder. So that's roughly 43 million people and millions more kids. So if we were to just look at this huge societal need, doesn't it seem unfair for any psychiatrist to refuse to take insurance? Like if they all took insurance, wouldn't that open up access, which we desperately need? um, So it might. The real question is, How do we make it more attractive and feasible for them to accept insurance? And of course, Matt, I realize that this is just one small piece of the puzzle. Yeah, right. The the fact that psychiatrists are relatively poorly paid compared to other doctors counts for something here. That's part of the reason not enough people are going into the field. And we can't force people to go into psychiatry for the same reason we can't control their... Uh, wages. Uh, we can't uh, we can't force people into one specialty over another. Medical school is not Hogwarts. You don't get uh, assigned your specialty by a magical hat. What I don't really understand is why hasn't mental health parity solved this problem? I mean, insurance companies, at least under Obamacare, were supposed to provide just as good mental health coverage as medical coverage. It shouldn't matter whether I break my arm, have cancer, or like Jeff, have bipolar disease. Isn't the reimbursement for each of these supposed to be fair now? Well, it's supposed to be, but parity has not worked so well in practice. Insurance companies technically reach the letter of the law. That is, in most cases, they'll cover some mental health care, but it still can be pretty limited coverage, and it's still not paid all that well. So what's a psychiatrist to do? Yeah, great question. That That is our question to you. This is your next hard call. If you were a psychiatrist today, would you take insurance or not? You can go to our website, hardcallshow.org, and cast your vote. You can also defend your vote, learn more about the issues, and discuss the issue with others. We can't wait to see how you vote. Oh, and please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts and subscribe. Oh, and leave us a review. 
That'll help other listeners discover Hard Call. That's our show for today. This podcast was produced by me, Elaine Grant, and Dr. Matt Winia. Tyler Hill is our associate producer. Our theme music was composed by Andrew Randall. Other music was composed by Chris McClung. And we received theatrical assistance from Charles Packard, executive producer and director at the Aurora Fox Arts Theater in Aurora, Colorado. The Hard Call Humanities Advisory Board includes Drs. Tess Jones, Philip Joseph, Lisa Karanen, and Abraham Nussbaum. Abraham Nussbaum's book is The Finest Traditions of My Calling, and Dr. Dinah Miller's new book is called Commitment. You can find links to each on our website. Support for Hard Call Derailed was provided by the Colorado Health Foundation and the Community First Foundation. Next time on Hard Call... People were starting to lose faith in the rainmaker, which is what I was. You know, I could take zero to 40 million you know, or I could take zero to eight million, or I could take, you know, Levi Strauss's new divisions from, you know, X to Y. Well, I couldn't do that anymore.